0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Affair. I'm Vanity Affair Chief Critic Richard Lawson and my usual co-hosts Katie, Joanna, and Mike are all off doing different interesting things, but um, that means I get to be joined by uh, VF film critic Cam Collins. Hi, everyone. And our wonderful editor, Hillary Buses. Hello. So I brought you guys on today to talk about a couple things. Um, well, we have Cameron here, and we're also going to talk about Cameron Post, the miseducation <laughs> of the movie that won Sundance this year, struggled to find distribution, and is now finally coming out. We're also going to talk to Cam about a wonderful piece he wrote about Spike Lee and Black Klansmen that is now available to read on VF.com. But first, um, in the news lately, there's been a lot of talk about MoviePass. And I, I'm assuming that our listenership is familiar with this service, which was an app that started, I think, like seven years ago, but really only... Um, gained popularity last year when they basically introduced this insane deal, which was that you paid $10 a month and could basically see unlimited first-run movies. Were either of you on the service? Yeah. I I mean, I was part of the
2: wave of new people from the last year. I was part of the first wave of people who had to wait like three months to get our card in the mail.
1: Oh, right, yeah.
2: (laughs) Which was the first sign, I think, for many of us
3: That it was too good to be true.
2: Yeah, that it was too good to be true. Like From that moment of them being so overwhelmed by all these new customers, despite dropping their price so low that it was obvious that half the country would sign up, Um, them being so taken aback by that and unprepared was a sign.
3: Yeah, I actually uh, didn't sign up just because one of the great perks of our job is that we get to see a lot of movies early and for free. And so I figure that I probably wouldn't use MoviePass enough to actually justify buying it. But I got a gift subscription after Hanukkah. So I was using it until it abruptly cut out a few weeks ago. And then I was like, yeah, do I want to really re-up this when the company is going down in flames? So I am not a MoviePass user currently anymore.
1: And the company really is in trouble, and the the reason I'm bringing it up this week is that uh, it was just announced that they're now upping the subscription price to $15 a month, and most crucially, they're not supporting first-run movies. So anything that opens in more than 1,000 theaters, you can't see using MoviePass for. I think it's two weeks. Um. So you know, you could wait two weeks to see Mission Impossible or The Meg or whatever. But could um, you? Could you really? Like, yeah. <laughs> I would think that some people who are like really into Movie Pass are like seeing you know things when they open the, that weekend. Like that's important to them. So I'll be curious to see if Movie Pass can survive. Um, but for the time being, I feel like on film Twitter and stuff, there's just a lot of eulogizing for this kind of again too good to be true insane thing that in a way was sort of stealing money from venture capitalists <laughs> right, right, and giving right. it to people who just wanted to see movies, which is kind of great. An interesting
2: thing about being in a city like New York with MoviePass is that there are just so many, like, rep cinemas. Like, you can go see what's new in theaters, but there are also plenty of theaters where you can go see old things. And a lot of the people that I know were using it to see older things, and were using it to sort of get a film education. And that was a substantial number of people. Like, a lot of students yeah. um, use MoviePass. And so that's what makes me a little you know, sad, actually. Yeah, I
3: mean, it makes sense, maybe not from a business perspective, but from like an altruism perspective, if MoviePass kind of evolves into this service that you can use basically in order to see movies that you may not have seen otherwise, to see, you know, indies and repertory films and and things like that. Um, I mean, that does not seem as lucrative of a hook to get people to sign up for it as like you can see mission impossible six times in theaters if you want to although the other thing that movie pass has done over like this uh this fall that just happened didn't happen quickly it's been a gradual kind of series of increased uh restrictions and increased rules on the service like they made a rule about surge pricing like taking a page out of uber's book which worked out so well for uber um they started uh They started limiting the number of times you could see a certain movie um, and it would be like checked off. You wouldn't be able to go back and see it again, which I think a lot of people were doing before they stopped letting people do that. So uh, it did kind of... You could kind of see this coming if you were reading The Tea Leaves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the idea of it as almost kind of a library card, you know? So, like, yeah, you're not getting the new shiny, you know, hardcover. But, like, you can see the movie eventually. And, um, you know, I just know, like, anecdotally with my friends who are, you know, civilians are not (laughs) in our line of work who, you know, pay to see movies like normal people. um, All of a sudden there was just this market uptick in, like, conversation I was having with those people about movies they saw. Usually it would be, like... They'd go see Common by Your Name, and that was like the movie they saw that year, you know? Right. And this year, and like, and, but like it's been so many, and I really feel um, just in a sort of selfish personal way, like it's sad to lose that. Like I really, I think it reminded a lot of people that they like going to movies, but it just becomes so prohibitively expensive. And I wonder if there's like a, another way to do that. And AMC, the theater chain, has sort of entered now into the conversation where they have this $20 a month. You can see anything at AMC. But, you know, is AMC going to run the miseducation of Cameron Post? I don't think so. Right. And their seats are bad. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny how the like
2: the life cycle of movie pass has been so fast. Remember when they were in movie distribution? I saw what was it? Did you American Animals? I didn't see Gotti. I would have that would've that's a perfect MoviePass movie pass <laughs> movie. But I saw American Animals, which I believe that they helped distribute. And it seemed like they were trying to like they were trying to make the step that Netflix made long into the history of Netflix. They were trying to make it now. I'm just doing everything much too quickly and taking on much too much.
3: And I mean, I remember Quickster?
2: Oh my god. <laughs> what was Quickster?
3: Netflix Netflix uh briefly yeah. split into two companies. Um mm-hmm. there was one focused on streaming and one focused on DVDs. And I think the DVD one was called Quickster yeah. like with a QW like at the beginning. Okay, of
1: it. I vaguely God, were we ever so young. <laughs> yeah, no and
3: their and their stock plunge and everybody was like Netflix is over. Um and this was I think pre House of Cards. So it kind of it figured out a way to come back. So hey, maybe if MoviePass wants to Well, not Kevin Spacey, but...
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something. Maybe
3: there's a way for MoviePass to... Find out some new pivot.
1: Yeah, maybe. And I, I, I think it's funny that, that idea, uh, I think one of you said about American Animals, like, of a, of a movie pass movie, where like, we t- tend to talk about like plane movies. Not everyone gets to, you know, fly on long haul flights and watch movie- movies on planes, but like, you know, there's a certain level of, like, I would say, I haven't seen I Feel Pretty. I will confidently, happily watch that on a plane. Right. Um, and I think that was starting to happen with movie pass, but what was nice about that was also that people could do it more regularly, and you could get out of your house, and, I don't know. Do we think there's any glimmer of hope that, like, even if the good deal goes away, people will just still be in the habit of going to movies? Well, you know, what MoviePass really clarified, I think, was how much people really do
2: like to go to the movies. Yeah. That, like,
3: And just how expensive it just is. Just how
2: expensive it is. And that was really, I mean, right, because the story we were all telling was movies are on the decline. No one wants to see anything. They're only going out for blockbusters. And I think that that this MoviePass drama <laughs> has proven that actually there is a hunger. There are other things in the way. So... The theater chains and studios, I think, should be thinking about this. Um, I think the decline in Movie Pass, but the the upsurge in interest in movies.
3: If the only choices that a studio can have are a mid budget pictures, just go to Netflix and movie theaters only show giant. 300 million dollar budget blockbusters or we have some kind of subscription service that people can use in order to see smaller budget things like and i feel pretty like a documentary um then maybe they will see the benefit of that
1: yeah, and they're selling concessions. Like, that's, that's big money, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Wasn't there a movie that just— Big popcorn. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the big snowcap uh, industry. Um, wasn't there a movie that was just sold to Netflix or, like, kind of unloaded on Netflix? I mean, we saw it with Annihilation. Oh, and, yeah.
3: Andy Serkis' uh, yeah, oh, Jungle right. Book. Yeah,
1: exactly. Oh, right. And so, like, it's really depressing to see that. And that's, like, a huge, like, visual feast kind of movie. And now it's just going to be people watching it on their laptops or, or their— Or you know, on a plane screen. Or on a plane Which is screen. worse. Those Much are worse. small. small. Yeah, they're talking about uh, The resolution is bad. It's terrible. Everyone knows what you're watching. Yeah. <laughs> the guy and next a, to you is I'm just a watching plane Deadpool. Spy. I, like, I definitely take note of what everyone's watching. Oh, absolutely. I, I watched, um, I was flying somewhere, and I decided to re watch um, Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some. Was that yeah, what it's called? right because it's a fun movie and it's like boys in baseball pants right but like i was like on a plane with like children on it and i kept like and there's not like nudity but i kept <laughs> covering the screen it's <laughs> like so embarrassed
2: no I, you know you want to know something funny this is totally tangential, but uh i've noticed that movies that don't do well in theaters do well on planes like the movies where we were all like no one wants to watch that like what was like the gunslinger um the the stephen king movie that mm. was like the idris alba the oh, dark, dark tower. tower the dark tower yeah I was on an international flight recently where that was what most people were watching. And I thought, where were you?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because they wouldn't pay $17 for it.
2: Totally. Which is, like, again, it's just, like, I think it's not a matter of interest. Yeah. I think it's a matter of, well, leaving the house, A, and B, paying $17 for a movie that's probably bad.
1: Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> it's a lot of risk incurred, you know? Yeah. And I think that's something that, um, I don't know if you've gotten the same, either of you have gotten the same kind of, like, line of frustration from a reader. But, like, like years ago, I reviewed Battleship, the Peter Berg, you know, alien mess. Rihanna's um, screen debut. <laughs> yeah. well, she, you know, she was Oscar-nominated for it, obviously. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and I was like, oh, that was so stupid but so fun. And, like, I had a great time. It's big and loud and things blow up. And I kind of reviewed it as such... And a reader emailed me and said, "You know, like I appreciate that you had a good time, but like you didn't pay seventeen fifty plus parking plus your kids' tickets plus popcorn, whatever. Like this is a hundred dollar outing for a family, and like if it's a piece of shit, like we kind <laughs> of like want to know that. So like I think that um, something in, in, a, in, a, in a, again in a selfish sense that MoviePass did is it made me feel a little bit like less concerned about that because like maybe you know the financial burden wasn't wasn't as much. So I hope that right. we can find a way to." alleviate that for people because it was fun when everyone was seeing things.
2: It really was. I imagine
3: how much I remember weather- gathering around the water cooler <laughs> yeah. talking about the latest episode of Allie McBeal. It's exactly so that
2: dancing baby. Movie pass could have made like it possible for people to have seen the Oscar movies hmm. for once. <laughs> that <laughs> was the first
3: thing I used mine for was I finally saw Shape of Water. I was like mm. Very very late to that. It was in January.
2: I used my movie pass the first time to see *Tulip Fever*, which was meant to be an Oscar movie.
3: Oh, that is another that is another topic entirely.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it was that was very much a movie that I was like, I am not paying money to see this even though i have to review it there weren't screenings of it i should have taken that as a sign so i used my movie pass the morning that it dropped in in new york and was like this is the perfect thing to use movie pass for i feel like i haven't lost any dignity
1: by- <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that distributors need to hear though i mean like maybe somewhere like matthew McConaughey's wandering around like a texan desert and he's like if only movie pass had been around when the dark-. i think it was actually but yeah Well, one movie that will be contending for viewers uh, coming up in, uh, I think it's two weeks, uh, is Black Klansman, which premiered at Cannes to a pretty good reception. It won the equivalent of second place. Uh, And in the interim, between then and now, uh, you, Cam, have gone and interviewed Spike. You went to Fort Greene, right? Right, right. Um, So what was that experience like? Had you met him before?
2: Uh, I had not met him before. I'd written on him before, but we'd never... Met And I went to visit him on the set of She's Gotta Have It Season 2 for, speaking of Netflix, um, Netflix. Uh, and so got a little time with him on set, which is great to see how directors work and how they interact with people. And Your then, story
3: is so great, but one of my favorite things about it is how, like, walking down the streets of Fort Greene, like, everybody knows Spike. Everybody, like, wants to say hi to Spike.
2: Crazy. I mean, it's crazy. He's like the mayor. Yeah, it's, it's notable as a New Yorker, and I didn't say this in the piece, and I probably should have, that, like, no one does that. Like, you're supposed to ignore celebrities. When I saw Michael Fossbender in my neighborhood, first of all, he was glaring at everyone so that they wouldn't talk to him, <laughs> but also just like no one talked to him. You just don't do that. But with Spike, it was every single person that we passed in this like three or four block walk stopped and said hello.
1: And there was sort of a colloquial quality to it. It wasn't yeah. like a big like, oh my God, sign an autograph. It was like, hey. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cause he's, he, cause he's yeah. around. Yeah. He's like a,
3: he's like a neighborhood fixture.
1: Yeah. And, and, and that was just,
2: that was, it was interesting right because you know i think most people identify him with his 80s and 90s movies and i think his sort of 21st century run has been for for some people just highs and lows but mostly lows after movies like inside man and i think he's taking a lot of artistic risks but they're not making you know they're not making the kind of money etc that he was getting um earlier in his career so it's just interesting that in terms of persona that he's still this huge i just there are only a few directors that i think could walk down the street and everyone would say hello to them and like scorsese spike lee steven spielberg and then other people i think would largely be left alone. Yeah. Well just
3: cuz who <laughs> really knows what most directors look like.
2: Right, like the hipsters would say hi to Paul Thomas Anderson. We all know what he looks like. They would they would <laughs> weep. They, right. <laughs> they would. Right. I would certainly say hi to Sofia Coppola
1: if i saw her right. on the street, but like a lot of people would just be like, yeah, yeah. no, who are you? But he he not only because he's such a local in in his neighborhood of Brooklyn, but like i think he engenders that because something you get out in this piece really well is that his his movies have such a particular sort of tone and style, even though he's done different genre and whatever, but there's this kind of sen- this core urgency to his movies that, um, you know, has been around since the 80s. And something that I think people like myself responded to in Black Klansman was that, like, some of that spirit felt a little bit more renewed, you know? Right. And, and you know, he's done interesting things recently, like Chirac um, in particular. Um, but Black Klansman, I don't know. It just feels like it has the potential to... You know, kind of breakthrough in a way that one of his movies hasn't in a long time. Do you, do you feel that? Yeah, I, I, think, and I think that's the
2: hope. I mean, it's, it's a wider release than he's gotten in a little while. And, you know, this is a Jordan Peele project initially. Um, and Spike was brought on to revise the script and direct the movie, but it was originally a Jordan Peele Blumhouse collaboration. Um, and I think the hope was always that it was going to be big, in part because of, the moment it's a movie about a cop a black cop sort of infiltrating the kkk a black cop and a jewish cop infiltrating the kkk based um, on a true story based on a true story um by a, a a memoir by a man named ron stallworth who plays who's the real black cop rather um and it's just too good to be true in terms of like a movie like what kind of <laughs> you know yeah we've like we've seen this kind of Chappelle skit version of this but this is too good to be true and it's also just you hear the plot description and you think yeah that's a Spike Lee movie right it's like ridiculous in the right way it's political in the right way and I think the movie really carries that and it's also just you know Um, It's got like Adam Driver in it. It's got Topher Grace as David Duke, which is really an interesting performance. And I would totally tell people to see it on the basis of that alone, because it's so weird.
1: (laughs) And you spoke to to Topher Grace for the piece. And, uh, you know, he said, basically, I would not have played this role for any other director.
2: Right. I mean, right. He gave me a a, really walked away from that conversation with a sense of this is a risk. (laughs) Playing a white supremacist in a movie right now in particular is a risk. I wouldn't want to do it for someone who I wouldn't think would do well by the subject especially
3: playing like the world's friendliest white supremacist which his david duke is
2: right so he's just so chipper it's it's disconcerting um but also accurate to a moment in the kkk when david duke really was trying to polish everyone up and there's in the movie there's this contrast between the sort of stereotypical like southern hick kkk member and david duke who is polite will shake your hand even if you're black he hates you. <laughs> he thinks you have no rights. He'll keep but he's it to cordial. himself for
3: the minute. Yeah, right.
2: Um,
1: right. It, you know, it's 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 a it's an, an interesting movie. I think that people will really yeah respond to it. And even though it's a period piece um, set in the seventies, he well Lee brings into the present at the end in a very you know potent way. But like, it just has so many you know similarities in terms of conversations we're having now about race and racism and, you know, not just kind of the the latent personal kind of racism, but organized racism and, and, and this, this really scary resurgence of it. And what I think Black Klansman does, it says, well, no, it's not a resurgence. It's always been there. It's just we're now paying attention to it. And what I'm curious about is... You know, well, last year, pretty clumsily, Catherine Bigelow tried to wade into this, this, you know, topic with Detroit. And, you know, a lot of viewers were like, this was really irresponsibly done. Um, Obviously, Lee is coming from a different perspective. But do we think, like, what is the kind of public appetite for a fictionalized film about this topic? You know, I think about uh, in the, you know, the aughts when... They, You know, directors kept trying to give us the Iraq War movie that we needed, and no mm-hmm. one wanted it. Like, all right. those movies tanked. Uh, well, not tanked, exactly, but, you know, they didn't do well. So are we, like, do we think that there is a, people are wanting to see the stuff that Black Klansman is about on screen right now? I think Black Klansman
2: will play a bit better than something like Detroit, for example, because at least personally and amongst friends, I think what a lot of us are getting allergic to, if we're not already, is violence against black people in movies. It's just between, like, being online and seeing every day a new sort of video or another hashtag of a dead black person. It's just, I don't really want to see that repeated in movies. Particularly in the case of Detroit, it was just... It was it was traumatic and I don't think it was worth it. It
1: was a horror movie.
2: Yeah, it was, and it yeah. just it just the movie never circled back around to making me think, well, it was worth seeing this violence that I knew happened but maybe didn't know was this violent. Um, That's kind
3: of how I feel about like The Handmaid's Tale. Like yeah. I don't really need to watch women being raped and yeah. being denied care and you know being stripped of their rights like that's happening in the real world i don't know that watching it like a dramatization of it is necessarily helping
2: yeah like if you're going to do that
3: you have to be saying something else you have to
2: right you have to have you have to have stakes there that are beyond it's important to show these things because no one would disagree with you that we need to sort of bear witness to these things but there's something to be said for just the trauma bearing witness and if you're doing this responsibly then you should be thinking about making that worthwhile like um and and
3: black Black clansman also i think does a good job of kind of giving a spoonful of sugar um yeah because, I mean, I know that in the piece, Spike Lee told you that he doesn't think of the movie as a comedy, but there are a lot of comedic elements to it. I mean, you mentioned the Chappelle's show, like, kind of underpinning to it. And it also reminds me a lot of Blazing Saddles um, in that it is a movie about this, like, very suave, very smooth black man just, like, completely pulling one over on a gang of, like, white, white hick idiots. Um, and like there, there is definitely something very satisfying about that, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, I you know, I think the thing that I'm curious about is to see, because one thing we just have not had in American movies at all is talking about like the KKK in the context of Jewish people, <laughs> like,
0: which is weird. Yeah.
3: <laughs> which is weird because they're,
2: they're such a, like an they're obvious not target. <laughs> yeah. Like,
3: something. Like yeah. Never,
2: so never covert about their hatred of Jewish people at all.
3: No, totally. And something that I thought was really interesting in the movie was kind of the, the like dawning consciousness of the Adam driver character when he's like, Oh, I never really thought about myself as a Jew until I found out that these people hate me for this thing that I am that like, is not really visibly apparent. Like, right. But that was really – I don't know. If anything, I kind of wish the movie had dug into that more.
2: Yeah, same because that turned out to be – or at least just for me, the more surprising revelation was actually – I mean we should say this whole thing starts because John David Washington's character uh, decides to call the KKK to be recruited. So the black character is the one on the phone with the KKK but actually going to the meetings is Adam Driver's character. Um, And immediately these Klan members sort of suspect that he's Jewish. And then there's just repeated scenes of of increased tension over them trying to figure that out. And and that was where the – frankly, for me, where the main tension in the movie was because he's the one who's actually in the KKK meeting. Like putting
3: his neck out
1: there. Right,
2: right. Like John David Washington, his character is definitely doing some stuff, but he's not at the meeting because he's black.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think that like in a way like that does – sap the movie of a little if its sort of tension because john david washington is the central character and yet he's right. not the one doing the central action um so it kind of does become adam driver's movie which is like not exactly like what i think the movie's pitched at thematically um right. but i also think you know you mentioned the spoonful of sugar hillary there definitely is that but it's tainted and like at the mm-hmm. very end i don't want to spoil it exactly but like I think that Spike Lee is like, hey, uh, by the way, I know we were laughing, we're having a good time. Like, this is an interesting story, but like, this has such intense implications to the real world. And um, the release of the movie is timed very pointedly to uh, the anniversary of the uh, horrible events in in Charlottesville last year. You know, so I I I really appreciate that this movie, unlike maybe The Handmaid's Tale, and certainly unlike unlike Detroit, um, it has a sense of perspective that says. Stuff is grim and dark and serious, but also like life is more complicated than that and like there can be some levity and some silliness and like yeah, like some of these racist idiots are like funny because they're so stupid you know and they're so inept or whatever um, but that doesn't mean that they are harmless right you know and I think the movie is pitched really well so I'll be curious to see I'm really I mean the thing about you know, when I saw it can and that is not a very diverse crowd of critics let's say you know, you, so you, you, you get the initial reviews and it, it's lacking a certain perspective. And I'm so I'll be very curious to hear what black audiences think about it and what people who were around at that time think about it. You know, so I, I hope it's a hit. Did, how did Lee seem? Was he kind of sanguine about its chances or? He doesn't want to jinx it, but I think he's
2: feeling really good about it. Yeah. And I think between this and just she's got to have it doing well on Netflix, I think he's feeling good about you know, I mean, I, I don't think that he's someone who's too attached to his commercial success. And I think that he likes to take risks and do whatever he wants. But like anyone else, I think he's glad that it seems like this is going to be something that people see and really uh, relate to. And I think, that's, I think that's good. I think it's a good movie.
3: Did you talk at all about what he's got coming up besides she's got to have it?
2: Um, he wouldn't say, but I, I, there's got to be something, right? Mm-hmm. He's always, I mean, he seems extremely busy. He's I know prolific, he's done Uber yeah.
1: commercials. So you've written on him before and, you know, you've seen his films. Uh, was there anything in talking to him that surprised you that he said or it sort of – was he the person you kind of expected him to be?
2: Uh, he was exactly who yeah. I expected
1: him to be, which is
2: extremely smart, ex- you know, extremely fun to talk to about his movies and also, you know, a little bit cranky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be fair, you know, I was meeting him on the set of his movie. He was tired like anyone else. But – uh, he was he was cranky in all the right ways. I, it wouldn't be a good Spike Lee interview if he weren't a little bit cranky. Yeah, you I kind of, of appreciate him. that. <laughs> yeah.
3: Did you say About anything him. that he kind of like challenged or?
2: He really did not like when I would mention other directors. Like at all. Yeah.
3: Like comparing him to them. Right. Okay.
2: I, I think I think that he is wary of of us trying to understand his movies through other people's movies, except on the point of there being some confusion in some of his recent work about the role of comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, He was very clear about there being a long tradition and he's right, a long tradition of American directors who've done satire or satire adjacent stuff where there's humor mixed into the movie, but it's a serious moral vision. Um, And he's right that when people kind of get on his case about that, that it's a little ahistorical that he's not, he didn't invent that, but it should also be said that he's kookier in his comedy than any of the directors he mentioned beyond Kubrick. Um, like Doctor Strangelove is a weird movie, and he references it in Chirac actually. But uh, you know, other directors like Billy Wilder, etc., aren't quite as out there as Spike is. Frankly. Yeah, I mean,
1: Black Handsmen a weird movie. It's, it's like slapsticky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, and and, and one, weird, the right. the final non-actual footage shot. it's it's weird i mean it's like it's stylistic and stylized and you know i think that he's um i mean going back to do the right thing like that that's a weird movie too you know right Um, yeah so you know this podcast cynically is about awards you know do we think that this is an awardsy movie i
2: think it's definitely going to get the push yeah i think that the oscars in particular have not been too great to spike lee i think that Certainly many people in the voting body know that, and I think might see this as a chance to, A, honor something that is deeply relevant on the heels of honoring Get Out. Um, this is produced by, by, uh, you know, Jordan Peele and Jason Blum, so it's very much in that wheelhouse. He's never been nominated, right? Is that right? He's never been nominated as director, director only as right, writer, yeah. and for documentary for uh, four right. Little Girls.
3: I can see, like, adapted screenplay. I think that that's yeah. probably its best. I mean, and and original screenplay is what Get Out one. so if that's kind of this, if screenplay is where the Oscars are going to honor, like, the kind of creative, off-the-beaten-path movies and, like, kind of keep best-pictured to more middle-of-the-road Oscar-y fare, then that's probably
1: – yeah I it's agree. best chance yeah and i think you know i mean we have a new academy so who knows um but there is a really again to be cynical part of me that's like well black panther is probably going to get a best picture nomination will people say oh you know our work is done like we don't need you know <laughs> I, I don't know like there can can't have two one. movies with black right, <laughs> exactly that's too much how dare we yeah yeah um well we'll keep an eye on it and in the meantime um i would urge any, anyone listening to read Camp's piece it's great and then go see the movie So from Cameron Collins, we move to Cameron Post. The Miseducation of Cameron Post is a movie that uh, won Sundance, that won the, the kind of top prize, and then kind of languished for months, and finally got picked up by a distributor, I believe, for less than the budget of the movie, which is not never a good thing. Oof. And uh, now is coming out small release, but it stars Chloe Grace Moretz, who is arguably a m- movie star. <laughs> I would say this is
2: the movie where I realized she was a movie star okay. because she is surrounded by non movie stars beyond to my mind Jennifer Ely Mm -hmm. and I realized oh you're not like a normal young
1: actor you're like a Mm -hmm. you've got a glamour (laughs) that I don't think she can quite shed frankly yeah which is maybe a problem in this movie so she plays a kind of regular teen in the early 90s who uh, is caught fooling around with a friend of hers who's a girl and is sent by her religious aunt to um, uh, a gay reparative therapy sort of camp, I guess you could call it. And it's about her sort of navigating those very strange waters. And it's, it's funny because, you know, back 20 years ago, um, Deep Impact came out and then Armageddon came out. And then maybe the year before that, Volcano came out and then Dante's Peak came out you know we're, so we're having that year except it's Ants about Ants
3: and a Bug's Life Ants <laughs> and a Bug's Life thank you
1: but <laughs> right. this year it's about gay repetitive therapy for teenagers <laughs> Right, because right. Boy Erased is the is the big one with Lucas Hedges coming out in the fall so do we think this movie which is directed by Desiree Akhavan uh, and it's her second feature film and she is a queer woman herself and Boy Erased is directed by you know a cis straight guy and do you think Cameron Post can hold up to Boy Erased like in terms of like this year's you know, estimation of, of this kind of subject in these movies
3: well boy race definitely has a much bigger name cast yeah which is probably going to be you know it's it's way into the awards conversation uh, more so than cameron post um but it there is definitely i think like an authenticity to cameron post that it it gets at least you know partially because of its creative team that uh that i don't know if you can necessarily count on a movie like boy race to have
1: yeah, yeah. And Boy Erased is based on a memoir. And so, you know, there's a there's a real life story component there. But like, I, yeah, something I, I liked about Cameron Post, and there's a, a lot I didn't like about the movie, to be honest, but like, something I really like about it is that it feels uh, unsensational, you know, mm-hmm. and I think in particular to there's some sex in the movie and, and even just kissing
3: Chloe Grace Moretz um, spends most of the movie making out with somebody
1: Yeah right yeah impressively Yeah and there's nothing Freakly. like <laughs> kind of gazy about it or at least male gazey about it and there's nothing it just feels very organic and i feel like that's rare to see in a movie especially one about like queer teenagers um and you know you go back to like but i'm a cheerleader and that movie getting you know a crazy ra- rating from the MPAA because of one scene where i think she, someone goes down on her or something uh so we've made some progress on that front that like this is not some like unrated you know nc-17 whatever scandal movie but it feels real at least Similarly,
2: I was just really taken with the fact that the sex in this movie is a really frequent and b just sort of unremarkable in a good way. Mm-hmm. It just it's it's not like in Call Me by Your Name where you know that the movie's moving toward that moment that that's a thing that's going to happen and you're sort of waiting for it to happen. In this, it's it's pretty early and then it just keeps happening. Um, or blue
3: is the warmest color. Or blue where, is the warmest color. Which. It just, like, still makes me uncomfortable to think about because of yeah. the, the way that those scenes are, like, posed and and they just, yeah, they very much seem directed by a man.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, to your question about Boy Erased, I would be surprised if Boy Erased had as much sexual content as this does in part because it's about a boy. And somehow, some I just have a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't think of, like, a, a mainstream queer movie that had as much sex as Cameron Post
1: does, right? Yeah. Are you saying that uh, we're not going to get a choice of on Xavier Dillon sex scene in- this fall? <laughs> I, think, I think we're going to get some I need to change up. some plans. And that beyond that. <laughs> or
3: Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be the one sex scene in that movie. <laughs> Nicole Kidman that takes that wig off. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank God, it's like how to get away with murder. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, speaking of Im- imperious uh, ladies, uh, Jennifer Ely, who you mentioned, wow. is in this movie, and she's kind of the villain. I mean, she's the director of this camp, and she has this kind of, you know, very placid sort of therapeutic kind of demeanor. She's kind of she like doesn't. a nurse
3: ratchet figure. Yeah, right.
1: very much so. Right. She's great in this. Um, she really is. And it was one of our, I think, her, like, she was in several movies at, at Sundance. Um, I've been kind of negative about Chloe Grace Moretz for a while. I, I think I was very annoyed. She got cast in Carrie. Um, and, like, I just find her to be a little bit show kid y. But I think she kind of does a break, a, you know, breaks through some of that here. Like, it feels like a f- more thoughtful performance.
3: I will say yeah. she's been playing teenagers for 30 years yes. in movies. Yeah. How, how
1: Since much time a teenager? <laughs> she yeah. plays
2: teenagers the way that Jennifer Lawrence plays older women. <laughs> 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 Frankly, it's like they get stuck into these ruts that just don't match their age. Yeah. But Chloe's interesting to me. I, I, I watched this and I. I was saying to you guys earlier, I, this is when I noticed that she's a movie star because she's surrounded, like the others, the other stars are great. In fact, there are people in the movie who are better than her. I think that uh, Emily Skeggs, who plays her roommate in the movie, who's Tony nominated actress from Fun Home is scary, <laughs> uh, is, is scary in her religious repression, but so good. She was great. Uh, she's fantastic. And I also think that uh, one of the guys, Owen Campbell, who has a sort of sad storyline in the movie. Um, is quite good, too. But Chloe is just such a movie star. I just did not believe that she was a teenager in a camp. I I thought that she was a In 1993. Right. She was a movie star surrounded by other great actors. Um, Also, Sasha Lane from American Honey. Just really good younger stars. But just I kept looking at Chloe and thinking, yeah, you can't, like, de-glow yourself. You have, like, you're a magazine cover wherever you go. They didn't even try to give her, like, a fake sit. (laughs) <laughs> they just knew that we wouldn't believe. <laughs> or like a brown dye job. Right. Or like right, imperfect hair. It's like how are you such a movie star in this religious gay conversion camp? There's
3: there's one line where they're like sitting in group therapy or something and like the mean the mean kid at camp, at D-gay camp, it, like it says something to her like, I just look at you and I know you're a dyke. And I'm like – Really? She right. just
2: looks like a beautiful movie star. And, right. And even and even like Chloe in character is sort of confused. And I don't think that she's confused in the way that I was confused, which is, no, she's Chloe Grace <laughs> Yeah,
1: I don't know who you think you're looking at. And, and a funny thing that the movie does, and, I, and I, I I doubt it was in reaction to her being cast, but like the central character – the title character of the movie, she's so recessive and, like, kind of, like, doesn't say a lot and just sort of is there observing. And all the other characters around her, Emily Skaggs' character, uh Owen Campbell's character, they're doing all this big stuff. And, like – and so even with this very, very muted character, Moret's just still just – it's like, no, like, you're – like, there. I see you, you know? like <laughs> No, totally. She yeah. could
2: not hide. I think – and I think it – you know uh,
3: – Which is why it made zero sense for her to be cast as Carrie. Like, that's the right, most ridiculous right. casting –
2: In movies. Right. Exactly, exactly. It's, it is such an interesting problem to have being too charismatic to have such problems. But it, it, I do like her a lot. I don't, I don't know that she works in the scale of this movie, but I, there, she has a quality that just interests me. There's something about her. Where I don't look at her and think about what her characters are thinking. I just look about, I just look for what they're going to do. Even, even despite all the sexual content in this movie, I can't think of moments where she's coming off as like, I'm horny. (laughs) Let me find some tail. It's more just like she just leaps to it and she just does things. And I just kind of like to see Chloe do things. Um.
3: It's funny, also like I was looking back at her filmography, and Chloe Grace Moretz has like so many way adaptations that kind of went nowhere in her in her past. Uh, she did If I Stay, she did The Fifth oh, I Wave, which about was that. yeah, and that. Yeah, so If I Stay was kind of like a weepy, like, romance, um, sort of, I guess, like a Our stars type movie, and The Fifth Wave was sort of like a Hunger Games knockoff kind of movie, and The Miseducation of Cameron Post is actually also an adaptation of a YA novel. Um, but this seemed to maybe suit her. Maybe this is kind of the sweet spot that she should be looking for, like a quieter, less bombastic uh, something. I mean, if there's a way to do that while also seeming... Uh, like she is actually the person that she's playing because she is a movie star and right. her her natural effervescence or luminescence or whatever is kind of hard to tame. But
2: yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's I really love her in Clouds of Sils Maria because she's playing a, a starlet and just I was so convinced that she would be the ant like the antichrist to Juliette Binoche <laughs> 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 like, it was actually like a, a kind of perfect role for her. It's It's interesting to see that. She's mostly doing these YA adaptations, as you're saying, because she, to me, is good at that, but just is out of place always. Yeah.
3: She was really funny on 30 Rock, too. Just throwing she's that really out there. She's really funny on
1: 30 Rock. She, she's, she's just funny. doing comedy. She's yeah. so funny. I feel she's that really about funny a lot in that scene
3: where she's uh, singing for non-blondes. Yeah, That's totally, a great scene. Totally. Oh, that is a good scene. And it's, you know, it's
1: odd that, that this is a YA adaptation because it doesn't have the sort of tonal trappings of a YA movie. Right, it's very much like in a grown up, inde- small independent film. Um, and so I'm wondering, like, does this movie reach the audience it sort of maybe needs to? You know, you know, you know. And in in 2018, I, I mean, reparative therapy obviously still exists and everything. Um, but like, I'm just kind of curious about this movie's like social value in a way because it doesn't have a lot of. St- there's not like a huge sort of discovery d- d- throughout the movie. There's, it just kind of happens. Um, and the yeah.
3: ending is just kind of like, well, now the movie's over.
1: Yeah. 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 And you know, and adding
2: to that, there's also, I wonder if some people will go into a movie like this thinking, so now I'll get to see what it's like in these sort of de gaying camps. But watching the movie, I don't know. Like, that voyeuristic sense for me was not satisfied by the movie. Well, also because
3: life doesn't really seem that bad in the
2: Deacon. Yes. Can we talk about the freedom that they had to even just go on hikes? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a whole subplot in this movie about some of the kids sneaking off to grow weed in the forest. And it's like, but you're at this, like, Christian camp. How are you, how is no one paying attention to you going off into the woods to smoke weed? Or, like, how are they letting you even be alone if the whole idea is that you're at risk of falling into the gay again. Like, why would they let two women go off into the woods together? I don't understand <laughs> why they yeah,
3: why they bunk same-sex roommates. Right. That's bizarre.
2: Like, there's a sex scene in one of their rooms, and it's just like, so there's no one monitoring? Not that I want them to be, but it's more like, I guess I had a, a much more probably myopic, violent, not in the physical violent sense, but just in the emotionally violent sense of what was going on here. Although, to be fair, this is also apparently a movie about people who
1: are running one of these camps who don't really know what they're doing. And one of whom is himself, mm-hmm. played by Johnny Gallagher Jr., like has been through the program, right? Um, which the movie kind of teases out a little bit. But yeah, I think that what the movie felt lacking to me was a sense of stakes. And yeah. I appreciate that Akavan is trying to do something... Subtle and, you know, understated and not make
3: the not make the people running the camp these cartoonish exactly
1: and not make their conditions hellish, you know, just for the sake of, you know, filmed drama but, like, boy, it's hard to grab onto anything, you know? Yeah. The kid, Owen Campbell, who has the sort of tragic arc in the film, like, he is such a good theater kind of, you know, actor. Like, he has this big monologue where it's just like, oh, he's done done that on stage at, like, the high school drama <laughs> competition. Like, that was his audition. Yeah. Oh, he played monologue. John Proctor. Oh, and did he? Yeah, he found his goodness. You know, and so when that when those kind of things briefly happen in the movie, we're like, oh, like, this, this is something to hold on to, and then the movie just recedes again, and we're back to Chloe kind of staring, and and i right. just yeah it just it for me it did not get the blood up the way that i wanted it to i can
3: see you know? a boy i can see boy race being more dramatic in yeah. that way yeah, yeah. Or i mean melodramatic. Even, the tra- even the
1: trailer like you know with him staring at this like poster of this torso or whatever i don't know there just seems to be a lot more like
2: <laughs> no yeah totally i mean something weird about this movie is just i mean i know people often accuse movies of or feel you know negatively toward movies for having what's called a kind of sundancey feel or a sundancey arc And generally, I kind of – I hear that complaint, but I'm also like, well, this is sort of an opportunity to see what's unique about a movie when it's kind of adhering to formula. You can actually pick out what's interesting about it. But in this case, I just kept being frustrated by the fact that there were details that I just wanted more of. Like you mentioned, like John Gallagher having gone through the camp and being the brother of Jennifer Ely's character – There's, there's, there, there. I wanted a little bit more of that. I wanted more of Jennifer Ely's character. I wanted to know more about these people running this thing, and I also just wanted more of other characters who seem. I mean, there's one, there's one woman at the camp who loves to sing, (laughs) and her character is probably one of the most poignant in the movie because for her, it's like this actual suppression of her voice that's happening, and things like that that felt like flourishes. I wanted to sort of feel like I knew more yeah it's a ni- it's a
3: 90 minute movie yeah. it could maybe have been beefed up especially because looking into i think the book is like 500 pages long oh, wow. like they cut out a lot i think they focused very much like on like the last third of the book and that you basically see cameron's life like from childhood until her parents in a car crash uh which happens at the beginning um and like through her relationship with her girlfriend before she gets sent away and like so there's a lot there um that the movie doesn't get into, which might have been interesting. Right, Maybe it would like, have made Cameron feel more like a well-rounded person.
2: Yeah, just like a little bit of like, to use a word that we don't normally use to, for this kind of movie, world building.
1: Yeah. Um, frankly. Well, for- Forrest Goodluck, uh, is an actor who plays a character in the movie, uh, who's Lakoden, and he has this whole, not whole, actually. It's kind of a mentioned thing about Lakotan beliefs about, you know, um gender and how gender can kind of change and, you know, and right. all this stuff. And I'm like, wait, wait, I want to watch that movie. Like, that yeah. sounds fascinating. Right. Like, I don't necessarily need to see this, like... You know, sort of conventionally pretty white girl, like, you know, like, struggle with Growing this. Like, weed, like some I, I want to talk to this, like, <laughs> the Codin kid who, like, has all this kind of elevated spiritual thinking about this and, and, and Sasha Lane's character with, you know, who, who, um, has a physical disability. Like, there was, there's interesting stuff there that the movie could dig into yeah. that, you know, made me say, hey, this should be a TV show. Yeah. I mean, the, the coding character, for example,
2: he's the character that Jennifer Ely's character is the meanest to because yeah. he, his hair is always in his face and, when you notice that, when you notice that she's being the meanest to him, at least for me, it's like, so is this – like, tell me – give me a little bit of a sense. Don't make it explicit necessarily, but like, is this about the femininity thing? Is it a race thing? Like, what is her perspective? Does she have one? Or is she just picking on this one kid in a sort of meaningless way? And, you know, just why doesn't she – I don't know. Why doesn't she have particular things that she wants to fix about every kid? That seems like what she would do. Um, You know, just things like that where it's like, I, I need – less plot point and more evoke these people for me Um, because they're all characters are all so rich frankly
1: well I'd say the movie is still worth seeing it's now kind of being slowly rolled out in theaters and I'm sure it'll be on demand Um, maybe you can use the last vestiges of your movie pass to go see it the only kind of movie you can use (laughs) movie pass Uh, for anymore that does it for us this week Um, as ever you can follow us at little gold men I am on twitter at ryla's Uh, I'm on Twitter at Melville Maddock and Hillary.
3: And I am Hillabuster with two R's.
1: This episode was edited and produced by Daniel Roth. And this week's award for the best reveal of where Mike, Katie, and Joanna went goes to Kim Collins. Some of the kids sneaking off to grow weed in the forest.